You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is the fourth lecture from the uh, cycle by Rudolf Steiner entitled According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity. Lecture 4 We learned yesterday that there is a great and important difference between age-old means of perceiving the spiritual world and the mode made possible by the specific bodily constitution of the Hebrew people. Beginning with their progenitor Abraham, the Hebrew constitution included a physical instrument for perceiving the spirit, to the extent possible by means of sensory perception. The Hebrews moved beyond a shadowy sense of the divine to actual cognition. Perception of divine spirit has always occurred, and still does, in all times and places, but it is achieved through initiation and by following a path prescribed by the mystery schools. This timeless type of perception must be distinguished from the type that is natural and normal at any given time and emerges as a particular mission within human evolution. In ancient Atlantean times, for example, astral clairvoyance was the normal way of perceiving the divine spiritual world. In contrast, the spiritual perception that was normal in the heyday of the Hebrews developed with the help of a specific physical organ and organ-supported powers of cognition. As we said yesterday, Abraham's people achieved this cognition by sensing the fusion of divine existence with their own inner life. Their internalized cognition of the God within was made possible by developing a specific organ. Do not imagine that immersing themselves in their individual inner nature and attempting to understand it as profoundly as possible enabled the Hebrews of that time to discover a droplet of divine spiritual existence that would grant them insight into the spiritual structure that pervades and enlivens the outer world. This possibility emerged only gradually as the Christ manifested increasingly in human evolution. The ancient Hebrews did not experience the divine as individuals, but only through their folk spirit by experiencing their ethnicity. When individuals felt connected to a sequence of generations united by common blood, they also sensed the divine Yahweh consciousness living in their folk consciousness. To describe the God Yahweh accurately, in the spiritual scientific sense, it is not enough to call him the God of Abraham. To be exact, we must say that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the being who flows from generation to generation, revealing himself through the folk consciousness of individuals. Christian knowledge of the divine represents a major advance over the cognition of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The difference is that individual Christians achieve insights that were accessible to the ancient Hebrews only through immersion in their folk spirit, which flowed in the shared blood of generations. As the chosen founder of an emerging lineage, Abraham knew that the God his people acknowledged as the Most High would live in the blood of their generations revealing himself in their folk consciousness. 
This became the normal, natural way of perceiving the Godhead. Throughout the ages, however, a higher state of spiritual perception has persisted in the mysteries, independent of temporal modes of perception. In the mystery centers or oracles of ancient Atlantis, students could undergo inner development and attain astral etheric clairvoyance that allowed them to perceive the divine spiritual foundations of existence. Even when the new Hebrew mode of cognition had become normal, they could still learn to raise the eternal element in themselves to perception of the divine spirit. Although it became normal for Abraham's descendants to perceive the Godhead while in the body, out-of-body perception was still taught in certain mystery centers. Abraham had learned to recognize the divine spiritual element, the directing divinity of the world, through cognition connected to a physical organ. It is easy to imagine his next step. Before Abraham could play a vital role in human evolution as a whole, he had to recognize that the God revealed in his folk consciousness was none other than the creative divinity that had always been recognized in the mysteries. Only under very specific conditions, however, could Abraham be certain that the forces speaking through his folk consciousness were the same as the forces that spoke in higher ways through the mysteries. To understand his certainty, we must consider a series of events in human evolution. In an outline of esoteric science, you can read about the ancient Atlantean initiates or oracle priests, the name is unimportant. The sun initiate was the leader of all the Atlantean oracles, including the lesser oracles that housed the initiates of Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and so on. This great sun initiate also led the important westward migration of Atlanteans who settled Central Asia and established the first post-Atlantean cultures. In addition to making it possible for the sages we know as the holy rishis to become the great leaders of their culture, the sun initiate also initiated Zarathustra. Zarathustra and the Indian rishis, however, were initiated in different ways that served different purposes. When the rishis cultivated their inner life, they attained an initiation that enabled them to express the great secrets of existence in a natural way. As a result, they became the great leaders and teachers of pre-Vedic Indian culture. Their perception, though acquired artificially, was still very similar to ancient Atlantean clairvoyance, but it was distributed among the seven rishis so that each held, so that each had an individual focus. Like the various oracles with their specific fields of activity, each of the seven rishis also had a specific task. Each shared with his colleagues what he knew of the original wisdom of the cosmos, which he had received from the great sun initiate, who transplanted ancient Atlantean wisdom to the east and passed it on to the founders of post-Atlantean culture. Zarathustra received this same wisdom in a different way, and then communicated it as I have described. The rishis of ancient India taught people to turn from the illusory world of Maya and develop their inner life so that they could ascend to divine spiritual spheres. Unlike the rishis, Zarathustra did not urge his disciples to turn away from outer manifestations. Instead, he taught that Maya is the true garment of divine spiritual existence. 
Rather than turning away from it, we must study it and learn to understand it. We must see the sun's body of light as an outer garment concealing the activity of Ahura Mazda. In a sense, the views of Zarathustra and the Rishis were in opposition to each other. Post-Indian culture was significantly different in that it attempted to impress the results of human spiritual attainments on the outer world. Before Zarathustra's legacy to Moses could grow and bear fruit, it had to be planted in the ethnic group founded by Abraham, who was the first to embody the potential for an organ that would allow consciousness of Yahweh. Abraham had to know, however, that the God who spoke to his inner physical powers of cognition was the same as the eternal, omnipresent God of the mysteries, who was simply revealing himself in a more limited way adapted to Abraham's ability to recognize him. It is not immediately possible for a being as exalted and universal as the great Atlantean Sun Initiate to speak a language that can be understood by people who live in a particular time and have a specific mission. Such an initiate leads an eternal existence and is never identified by name and age or father and mother. The great guides of human existence can reveal themselves only by taking on attributes related to those who must receive their messages. Thus, in order to instruct Abraham, the individual who had taught both Zarathustra and the Rishis appeared in a form that incorporated the etheric body of Abraham's forefather, Shem, Noah's eldest son. Shem's etheric body had been preserved as Zarathustra's etheric body was preserved for Moses, and the great initiate of the Sun Mysteries used it to reveal himself in a way that Abraham could understand. The Old Testament describes Abraham's encounter with the great Sun Initiate as his meeting with Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of God Most High, Genesis 14, 18-20. At this great and all-important meeting, the Sun Initiate, in order not to confuse Abraham, so to speak, appeared to him in the etheric body of Shem, the forefather of the Semites. It is significant that the Bible mentions a fact that is unfortunately all too seldom understood, the origin of Melchizedek's gifts to Abraham. These gifts, which Abraham was able to understand only in his own limited way, were the mysteries of sun existence, the mysteries of the being whose coming Zarathustra had foretold. Zarathustra taught his chosen disciples about the spiritual being Ahura Mazda, who stands behind the sun's body of light. He told them that this being was not yet united with earth, but would one day descend to the earth and merge with its evolution. Now that we know that Zarathustra could only prophetically proclaim the coming of the Christ, the sun spirit in a human body, we must also realize that still greater profundities of the sun mysteries had to be revealed to the individual who was to prepare Christ's incarnation on earth. This happened during the encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek, when Zarathustra's teacher, drawing from the same source as the Christ, brought his influence to bear on Abraham. The Bible points symbolically to this common source by telling us that Melchizedek presented Abraham with bread and wine. Bread and wine appear again when the mystery of the Christ is revealed to his disciples during the Last Supper. By emphasizing that their offerings were the same, the Bible indicates that Melchizedek and the Christ drew from the same source. To prepare the way for later events, Abraham had to be influenced 
although indirectly through Melchizedek, by the sun element that would later descend to earth. For Abraham, the highest conceivable being, the spirit that inspired, was the being he called Yahweh. After his encounter with Melchizedek, Abraham recognized Yahweh as the source of initiate consciousness, the highest form of earthly knowledge, the highest God who pervades and enlivens all worlds. Such was the consciousness that Abraham achieved through this meeting. He also became aware that what flowed in the blood of his people through generations was comparable to what clairvoyant vision sees in the mysteries of existence and understands in the language of the cosmos. I mentioned that the mystery schools express the secrets of the cosmos in the language of the stars. The teachers of the mysteries saw images in the paths and relative positions of the stars, and they used these images to express the spiritual experiences of human beings who rise to divine spirit. In the starry script of mystery wisdom, initiates once read the secrets of the Godhead who pervades and enlivens the cosmos. Constellations and conjunctions of stars were momentary revelations of the Godhead. The Godhead had to be revealed in the mission of the Hebrews through an order related to the paths of the stars. An order similar to that of the stars had to be expressed in the blood of generations, which contained the outer instrument for perceiving the revelations of Yahweh. In other words, some aspect of the blood kinship of Abraham's descendants had to reflect the starry script in the cosmos. For this reason it was proclaimed to Abraham that his descendants would resemble the constellations of stars in heaven. This is the correct interpretation of the sentence that is usually worded, quote, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, unquote, Genesis 22.17. It refers not to the quantity of Abraham's descendants, but to but to their relationships, which would resemble the language of the gods as expressed in the arrangements of the stars. People saw a divine order reflected in the structure of the zodiac. They saw the movement of the planets through the zodiac as the activity and language of the gods who pervade the cosmos. Hence the relationship of the planets to the circle of the zodiac had to manifest in the blood kinship of Abraham's descendants. Jacob's twelve sons and the twelve tribes of Israel reflect the twelve signs of the zodiac. The language of the gods is expressed above in the signs of the zodiac, just as Yahweh is expressed in the blood flowing through generations of the Jewish people, divided into the twelve tribes descended from Jacob's sons. The planets move among the constellations of the zodiac. We have already seen that certain periods in the story of the Hebrew people parallel the paths of planets through the zodiac. We drew analogies between Mercury, Hermes, and David, the royal singer, and between Venus and the period of the Babylonian captivity approximately six centuries before the Christian era, when Yahweh's revelation was reformed through a new movement. It was important for Abraham to recognize these parallels. For example, David's position in the tribal sequence corresponds to Mercury's relationship to the zodiac. The tribe of Judah corresponds to the sign of Leo, and David's historical position within this tribe is analogous to the presence of Mercury in Leo. Similarly, the other details of Hebrew history, blood relationships, the transfer of kingly and priestly offices, the battles or victories of each tribe, correspond to planets passing before certain constellations of the zodiac. 
<clears throat> this is the meaning of the words, quote, your descendants shall resemble the harmony of the stars in heaven, unquote. The modern tendency is to see only trivialities in religious documents based on esotericism, but we must assume that such documents are in fact infinitely profound. We can see a heavenly structure, for example, in the generational sequence described by Matthew. The evangelist indicates the specific composition of the blood that was to receive the individuality of Zarathustra, which would in turn support the revelation of Christ on earth. What was accomplished through the forty-two generations from Abraham to Joseph? Question. <clears throat> At the end of these generations, Jewish blood had been mingled according to the laws of the holy mysteries and those of the starry world. The great beauty and significance of the entire solar system was reflected in the inner order and harmony of the blood that the individuality of Zarathustra needed to complete its great work. This blood had mingled in ways that corresponded to cosmic principles of order. The important document that is available to us in diluted form, so to speak, in Matthew, is based on the profound mystery of how an ethnic group developed as a reflection of cosmic processes. Those who knew something of the great mystery of the Christ were aware that the blood of Matthew's Jesus of Nazareth reflected cosmic circumstance and the spirit that prevails in the solar system. They would express this mystery by saying that the spirit of the entire cosmos lived in the blood in which the eye of Jesus of Nazareth dwelled. The physical body of Jesus, therefore, had to reflect the spirit of the entire cosmos. Initiates realized that the force behind the mingled blood needed to support Zarathustra and Jesus of Nazareth was the spirit of our entire cosmos, which originally pervaded and nurtured the earth after its separation from the sun. <clears throat> My lectures in Munich showed that the beginnings of Genesis in Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'eth ha'aretz, should not be translated into trivial modern words incapable of conveying the original meaning. When we seek out its true meaning, this passage should be translated as follows, quote, In cosmic activity, within the legacy of Saturn's sun and moon existence, the Elohim conceived all outer manifestations and inner strivings. These inner movements were pervaded by darkness, and darkness prevailed above them, but they were suffused with warmth and incubated as a hen broods on her eggs by the creative spirit of the Elohim, by Ruach Elohim. This incubating spirit is the same organizing principle that is expressed in the constellations. The original Christian initiates knew that the mingled blood prepared for Jesus of Nazareth had reflected the cosmic activity of Ruach Elohim. They said that it had been created by the spirit of cosmic existence, Ruach, as in the important description that begins Genesis. This higher, holy meaning is far greater than any other, and it lies behind the Christian idea of conception by the Holy Spirit. The underlying meaning of the words of Matthew 1.18 is, quote, She who conceived this being was filled with the power of the cosmic spirit, unquote. When we sense the full scope of such a mystery, we discover something infinitely more exalted than the trivial exoteric interpretation of the Immaculate Conception. 
We can recognize the Bible's true meaning simply by contrasting two facts from the Bible itself. First, Matthew lists the entire sequence of generations from Abraham to Joseph. Why would he do this if it had nothing to do with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth? Having gone to great lengths to demonstrate the bonds of blood kinship that link Abraham and Joseph, could the evangelist really mean that this blood did not flow in the veins of Jesus of Nazareth? Second, we must consider the fact that Ruach Elohim, called the Spirit of God in our Bible, is feminine in the Hebrew language. We will say more about this later, but for now I simply want to awaken a feeling of the grandeur of the idea that lay behind this mystery from the very beginning. The Aramaic document on which Matthew's Gospel is based is the earliest known record of events at the beginning of the Christian era, and these events were known only to initiates. Both esoteric investigation and purely philological research reveal that this document existed as early as A.D. 71, quite soon after the great event in Palestine. My book, Christianity as Mystical Fact, tells how the Gospel really came about. Thorough, purely philological investigation also disproves claims that Matthew was crafted at a later date. My purpose here is not to present philological facts, but spiritual scientific facts. Nevertheless, let me mention just one proof from Talmudic literature which has been thoroughly substantiated by Jewish scholars. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Gamaliel II and his sister, after their father's death in a struggle with the Romans in A.D. 70, argued over who should inherit the elder Gamaliel's fortune. We are told that Rabbi Gamaliel II presented his case to a judge who according to all accounts in the Talmud, was half-Christian, a Christian Jew, as were a number of the judges appointed by the Romans to decide matters of law for the Jews. Appearing before this judge, who happened to be acknowledgeable, excuse me, who happened to be knowledgeable about Christianity, Gamaliel made the point that according to Jewish law only the son and not the daughter could inherit property, and that the inheritance therefore was his alone. At this the judge reminded him that because the Torah had been abrogated in his jurisdiction, his decision, therefore, would be based not on Jewish law, but on the law that had superseded the Torah. Rabbi Gamaliel saw that the only way out of his dilemma was to bribe the judge. The next day the judge issued a ruling based on the original Aramaic version of Matthew's Gospel, saying that the Christ did not, quote, come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, unquote, Matthew 5.17. He assuaged his conscience by bending the law, saying that he was judging according to the Christ's intentions in awarding the inheritance to Gamaliel. As I said, this happened in AD 71, since Gamaliel's father died during the persecution of the Jews a year earlier. Thus we learn that a Christian document in AD 71 contained wording found in Matthew's Gospel. This exoteric clue tells us that at least part of the original Aramaic Matthew had already been written. Later we will discuss what esoteric research says about this subject. I mention this only to show that when we utilize exoteric science, we must not make the all-too-frequent mistake of considering only the most accessible evidence while disregarding sources such as the Talmud, which in this case provides extremely important exoteric evidence on the matter. Even from an exoteric perspective, we are on firm ground when we say that the Gospel of Matthew was written relatively early on and that its compilers were not far enough removed from events in Palestine that they would lie with impunity about the life of Christ Jesus. 
because they were writing less than fifty years after those events, any false statements about what had happened would have been subject to the scrutiny of eyewitnesses. This is important exoteric evidence that supports the veracity of their accounts. As we saw, cosmic mysteries arranged for the creation of the body, for the reincarnation of the great initiate Zarathustra, who is the being described by Matthew. Through events in human evolution, this body absorbed the structure of the cosmos itself through the filtered and concentrated blood of the Hebrew people. We must also realize that these profoundly mystical events did not take place in full public view. Even for contemporaries, they were shrouded in deep secrecy, and only a few initiates understood them. Hence the profound silence that surrounds the greatest event in human evolution. It is quite natural and unsurprising, therefore, that historians today find nothing about this event in any of their documents. Much of what happened, both directly before and after the events surrounding the Christ's appearance, had been prepared far in advance. From the outside it was prepared by Zarathustra, who sent Moses and Hermes, and by Melchizedek, the representative of the Sun Mystery, who prepared the outer bodily garment for Jesus of Nazareth. In addition to this great outer current, we must also consider a different but related side stream, which developed in centers known even to exoteric history. In these centers, certain sects practiced specific forms of soul development. Philo calls these mysterious sects the Therapeutae. They attempted to ascend into pure spiritual spheres by following a path of inner development that would cleanse their souls and eliminate impurities due to exoteric contacts and exoteric knowledge. <clears throat> this side stream was especially well developed among the Essenes, an Asian branch of the Therapeutae. Christianity as Mystical Fact, Chapter 9, gives a brief account of the Essenes. The Therapeutae and the Essenes shared a common spiritual leadership, and an exoteric study of those leaders must include material covered in last year's lectures on Luke, when we discussed Oriental exoteric accounts of the mystery of Gautama Buddha in Eastern literature. Those who aspire to become Buddhas at some point must first become Bodhisattvas, and this was true of the historical Buddha as well. He was a Bodhisattva until his twenty-ninth year on earth as the son of King Sudhadana, when he became a Buddha through inner soul development. Human evolution has been guided by a whole series of Bodhisattvas, including this one, who became a Buddha six hundred years before the beginning of the Christian era. Any being who has risen from the level of Bodhisattva to Buddha no longer incarnates in a physical earthly body. In my lectures on Luke, I told how the Buddha was present at the birth of Luke's Jesus and how he united his etheric body with this Nathanic Jesus who was not the same as the Jesus of Matthew. The ascent of King Sudhodana's son to Buddhahood marked the end of an ancient development that began with the holy rishis of India. When a Bodhisattva becomes a Buddha, a successor takes his place. Ancient Indian legend tells us that when the Bodhisattva who was to achieve Buddhahood as King Sudhadana's son descended to earth, he handed the Bodhisattva's crown to his successor in the spiritual realm. This new Bodhisattva who is still active and will become the Maitreya Buddha had a specific task with regard to human evolution. He was the spiritual guide for the movement that manifested in the Therapeutae and Essenes. Approximately a century before the appearance of Christ Jesus on earth during the reign of King Alexander Janaeus, 125 to 70 BC, 
this Bodhisattva sent a particular individual to guide the Essenes. In esoteric circles, this personality is well known as an Essene precursor of Christianity. Exoteric Talmudic literature calls him Jeshu ben Pandira, Jesus, the son of Pandira, and reports all sorts of slanderous falsehoods about him, which have recently been revived. The fact is, however, that Jeshu ben Pandira was great and noble, though he is not to be confused, as some Talmudic scholars do, with Jesus of Nazareth. We know that Jeshu ben Pandira, after discovering blasphemy in Essene doctrines, was accused of blasphemy and heresy himself. He was stoned, and then to add insult to injury, hanged from a tree. <clears throat> His fate is known to esotericism, but it is also reported in the Talmud. We must recognize Jeshu ben Pandira as a protege of the Bodhisattva who succeeded the earlier Bodhisattva who had become Gautama Buddha. This much is clear. A side stream in the development of Christianity depended on this Bodhisattva and was played out in the activity of one of the messengers he sent into the Essene communities. This, miss miss this missionary was Jeshu ben Pandira, whose life we will describe in greater detail in the next lecture. That's the end of Lecture 4, given in Bern, September 4th, 1910.